pray now that you would impress upon us how good you have been to us. And just as Mike prayed, Lord, we pray that you would burden us with the gospel, with the knowledge that there are those who will perish apart from Christ. And we pray, Lord, that with this burden, we would also feel an immense gratitude, a stunned wonder that you were pleased to save us. We pray that you would do these things in our hearts, and we pray that we would be different people as we feel these things. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you this morning to open to Romans 9, and if you did not bring a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And as you turn there, I want to read a story from Mark Dever's book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And if you, in my opinion, I think this is the best book that Mark Dever has written. People might differ with me on that, but if you've not read this book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, I would commend it to you. In the opening, Dever writes this. Let me tell you an amazing story about a person you want to be like. And please hang in there through some of the details. John Harper was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was about 14 years old, he became a Christian. And from that time on, he began to tell others about Christ. At 17 years of age, he began to preach, going down the streets of his village and pouring out his soul in passionate pleading for men to be reconciled to God. After five or six years of toiling on street corners, preaching the gospel, and working in the mill during the day, Harper was taken in by the Reverend E.A. Carter of Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. This set Harper free to devote his whole time and energy to the work so dear to his heart, evangelism. Soon, in September 1896, Harper started his own church. This church, which he began with just 25 members, numbered over 500 by the time he left 13 years later. During this time, he had been both married and widowed. Before he lost his wife, God blessed Harper with a beautiful little girl named Nana. Harper's life was an eventful one. He almost drowned several times. When he was two and a half years of age, he fell into a well but was resuscitated by his mother. At the age of 26, he was swept out to sea by a reverse current and barely survived. And at 32, he faced death on a leaking ship in the Mediterranean. If anything, these brushes with death simply seemed to confirm John Harper in his zeal for evangelism, which marked him out for the rest of the days of his life. While pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. In fact, he was such a zealous evangelist that the Moody Church in Chicago asked him to come over to America for a series of meetings. He did, and they went well. A few years later, Moody Church asked him if he would come back again. And so it was that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket at Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had died just a few years before. 
And he had with him his only child, Nana, age six. What happened after this, we know mainly from two sources. One is Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken up by her father a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight, and he said that the ship they were on had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just about there to rescue them, but as a precaution, he was going to put her in a lifeboat with an older cousin who had accompanied them. As for Harper, he would wait until the other ship arrived. The rest of the story is a tragedy well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved, but the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper after is because in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, some months later, a young Scotsman stood up in tears and told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He had clung to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. He too was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, man, are you saved? No, I am not, I replied. He shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Then, losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there, alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. The passage before us shows us a man, the Apostle Paul, with a similar burden for evangelism. And the burden that Paul feels for evangelism is undiminished by Paul's conviction that God is absolutely sovereign over who will believe and when they will believe and how they will be brought to faith. God is absolutely sovereign over all of this, and that doesn't stop Paul for a moment feeling, as he will put it, unceasing anguish and great sorrow for those who do not know the gospel. We're going to look this morning at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It's, a, it's really kind of an unfortunate place to stop the sermon, verse 13. Hopefully we'll get that far. Um, but, but we'll pick up the argument and carry it forward, Lord willing, uh, the next time I'm in this pulpit. And, and so I would, I would just ask you to be patient with Paul's argument. As he unfolds his thinking here, he's going to say some things that, that might seem counterintuitive to us, might seem strange to us, might provoke questions in us. And, and my, my contention is that he's going to answer those questions. So let's just hear him out. Let's have, let him have his say, and let's try to learn from what Paul is going to say to us here. As we approach the first part of this chapter, um, l- let, me, let me try to help us all get our arms around what's prompting what Paul says here. Why does Paul say what he says in Romans 9? Well, 
what he's just said, what we looked at last week, at the end of Romans chapter 8, if you look at the last verse of Romans 8, the last words of that verse, he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now probably, as the, Roman, as the Christians in Rome hear this, read, this letter read to them, they're probably not processing everything that Paul has said all at once. But Paul's been doing this for a long time. And I suspect that over the years, as Paul has proclaimed the message that he has now written up and, and sent to these Italian Christians and Jewish Christians in the city of Rome, as people have thought about what he's, what he's said, their, their reaction will go something like this. Paul, you've just said that nothing in all creation is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. But what about the Jewish people? Aren't they separated from the love of God in Christ? And, and I think that question, that response, is a, it's a good question because what Paul is telling the Christians that they enjoy by God choosing them, really it's nothing more than what the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, enjoyed in God's choice of them and all of God's promises to them in the Old Testament. So it's an informed question and it's a right question. And Paul is now prompted to try to answer that question. So just so we're clear, Paul is saying to Christians, and, and let's also remember the remarkable truth of this, Paul is a Turkish Jew. Get your head around that for a moment. He's a Turkish Jew who was trained in Jerusalem, and he's now writing to a bunch of Italians who have believed the gospel in Rome. And, and he's just said to them, nothing in all creation is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And anticipating their, their question, well, what about the Jewish people? He begins to write here in Romans 9, and there are going to be three, three movements of thought here. In verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, I think we'll see Paul's evangelistic concern for his fellow Jews. So Paul's, Paul's own evangelistic burden. And then in verses 6 through 9, he's going to assert the word of God has not failed. So, so now think about how the logic works here. God made all these promises to the Jewish people. Now they don't believe. And, and part of Paul, Paul's answer to that question is, well, it's not because the word of God has failed them. And then he's going to begin to explain in verses 10 through 13 that things are working out the way that they are, that God's purpose of election might stand. So we got three movements of thought here, verses 1 through 5, Paul's own evangelistic burden, and then verses 6 through 9, God's word has not failed, and then verses 10 through 13, God's purpose in election will stand. So let's look together at verses 1 through 5. Paul writes here, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You notice how he piles up these phrases that, that really are all insisting on the depth of his own feeling. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. What he's doing here is he's emphasizing his own sincerity and the gravity of his own feeling. And, and in part, this I am speaking the truth, I am not lying, this is kind of the way that Paul talks, you know. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll see that he says this kind of thing 
in other places. So, you know, we all have uh, patterns of speech. We all have phrases that we return to. And, and Paul, when he gets sort of backed into a, an argumentative corner, so to speak, these things start coming out of him, insisting that he's telling the truth. And, and why would he do this? Well, I think that someone could allege, Paul, the, the things that you're about to say about the Jews, they're really callous. They're, they're really unconcerned. You're so, you're so informed about God's ultimate purpose that it's really, it's really removed you from being concerned about real people. And, and I think, in part, Paul is trying to say, no, I, I want to insist here that what I feel is genuine and I'm not so abstracted from real life that I'm not concerned about real people. So he insists in verse 1, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's a great man. Paul, Paul is a man who can simultaneously say that he is, he is one who is afflicted and yet rejoicing. People are complicated, aren't they? I think, I think if we met Paul, he'd be an extremely joyful person. And yet we'd also perceive from him that this is true, that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He's not shallow. He's not just all happy all day long. There, there's, there's both great joy and great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I want to encourage you to do this in response to what we're seeing here. I want to encourage you to pray for great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart for the lost people that you know. I think as Paul, as Paul says these words, he, I don't know if Gamaliel is dead at this point or not. I, I don't know if, if uh, Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh with whom he had studied in Jerusalem, we don't know what has become of these people. We don't know what has become of Paul's mother, his father. He probably had brothers and sisters. He probably had many cousins. We don't know how most of those people have responded to the gospel, the good news that the Messiah at last has come. Likely, most of them have, re have rejected it. Likely, this has resulted in Paul himself being ostracized from the majority of his family members. Family members, friends, people that he labored with, people that he studied with, people who had helped him, people who had invested in him, and he feels this, this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Now he goes on to explain, verse 3. And here, I think in, in many ways, Paul is, is like Moses. You remember Moses in Exodus chapter 32, when the people of Israel sinned with the golden calf, and Moses, uh, he knows that the wrath of God is going to fall on their sin. And, and so he says to the Lord in Exodus 32, verse 32, But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And, and Moses, in many ways, is anticipating the Lord Jesus, saying, in effect, let your wrath fall on me that you might Spare them and show mercy to them. And then Jesus lives that out. And now Paul is pursuing a Christ-like desire to be blotted out for the sake of his kinsmen. Look at what he says here in verse, verse 3. I could wish that I myself 
were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The word accursed here is the word anathema. He's saying, I could wish that I could be under God's wrath, under God's curse for their sake. Note, too, that what it means to be accursed for Paul in verse 3 there is to be cut off from Christ. <clears throat> so many of our, of our evangelistic attempts, they're going to be inconvenient. They're going to require us laying aside our own agenda. They're going to require of us sacrificing other good things that we could be doing. And, and what Paul is modeling for us here is a willingness to lay down his own life that other people might know God, that other people might know Jesus. So, so again, at point of application, the first one I suggested to you from verse 2, pray for this great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And that doesn't have to be at the expense of, of being able to be glad in the Lord those two things can go together as they do in Paul's heart. He's the one who says things like, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. And yet he also feels this unceasing anguish and great sorrow. So we should pray for this kind of emotional range and ability. We should also be ready to follow Paul as he follows Christ. And, and I know that many of you do make many sacrifices to share the gospel. And I, and I just want to say, excel still more. Keep at it. I know it's inconvenient. Uh, I know it's hard. And I, and I want to say, keep at it. Th these eternal souls, the, they need to hear the gospel. What Paul does next here in verses 4 and 5 is he rehearses all of the benefits that the Jewish people enjoyed. So verse 4, he says, They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. I think he's talking about the way that when the Lord commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Moses was to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let my son go. And then here again, you know, Paul has just said to the Christians in Romans 8, in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So it, it's like, look, Christians, you have what God formerly gave to Israel. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory. I think he's referring to the way that the, the cloud of God's glory settled first on the tabernacle and then in the temple, having the, the pillar of fire having, and cloud having led them through the wilderness. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. God's promises to Abraham. God's promises through the Mosaic Covenant, God's promises through the, pro the covenant that he made with David, that all belongs to Israel. The giving of the law, the worship, so the Mosaic Code and, and the, the, the tabernacle and temple system of, of worship whereby they would offer sacrifices and the promises. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus comes from them. What Paul is doing is, is heightening his audience's awareness of how privileged Israel was. And then look at what he says about Jesus. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, 
who is God over all, blessed forever. So anyone who says to you something like, well, the New Testament never says Jesus is God, just take them to Romans 9, 6. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Any, anyone who makes that statement, the New Testament never says Jesus. The only reason they can say that is because they've, they've uh, essentially said, well, things like that were added later. To which just say to them, what proof do you have of that? How can you demonstrate that? Paul clearly thought that Jesus was God. Now, how do we, how do we respond to the privileges of Israel? Well, yes, Israel has advantages, and Paul says that these gifts and their calling, he says in Romans eleven twenty nine, it's not going to be revoked. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. We'll talk about that when we get to it. I want to encourage you to look at your advantages. I mean, yes, Israel is, was blessed. But you remember Jesus said, he said, among those born of women, none greater, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean? I think he means if you participate in the kingdom of heaven, you have the revelation of the whole gospel. You have the whole story. And if you have the whole story, you're at a starting point that's farther along from where John the Baptist started, which makes you, in a sense, greater than John the Baptist. So look at the advantage of having the whole Bible, the whole of God's revelation available to us, the new covenant having been inaugurated, and the fact that in spite of the fact that we live in the middle of this vast continent, the gospel has come all the way to us from where it started over there in the, in the Greco-Roman world. So from Paul's evangelistic burden in Romans 9, 1 through 5, we, we should pray that we would feel an evangelistic burden. And I think we should also feel, from the rehearsal of Israel's privileges, I think we should also recognize how privileged we are. I was talking to my family in the car on the way here this morning about the way that none of us chose where we were going to be born, what country we were going to live in, what time in history we were going to appear out of our mothers. None of us made any choice about any of that. And we live at such a privileged point in human history. So we see Paul's evangelistic concern for his kinsmen in verses 1 through 5, and then we see in verses 6 through 9, and he's still working on this question, what about Israel? We now see him start to give a positive answer to it. His, the first part of his answer really is, I, f I feel what you're saying. I feel it deeply. And, and perhaps the answer even goes, I understand the issue more fully than you do. I understand your concern. I feel your concern. It's a bigger concern to me than it is to you. I've got a fuller understanding of it, is, of it than you do. It's kind of what Paul has said in Romans 9, 1 through 5. And then here comes the first part of his answer in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now what Paul is asserting here is, I know that the Jews have rejected the Messiah. The fault does not lie with God. The Jews have rejected Jesus as the, their Messiah, but the word of God, there is no deficiency in the word of God that explains 
their rejection of the Messiah. As I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think of these great statements in the Bible about the Bible, the way that the Bible does this self-attesting thing. You know, various biblical authors will make these statements about the Word of God. I love this, this verse, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then even statements like Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's glorious statements about the Bible. The word of God has not failed, Paul says. And now what he's got to do is he's got to explain, okay, if the word has not failed, then why do they not believe? And so here he begins to enter in into this discussion of why the Jews don't believe. And first what he wants to do is make some clarifying points. So in the middle of verse 6, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What Paul is saying is you have this nation as a whole, and and that nation we refer to as Israel, but not everybody who descends from that nation belongs to Israel in the sense that they belong to God. So he's recognizing and, and, and really articulating the way that across the Old Testament, in Israel, you got good guys and bad guys. And the good guys, they're seed of the woman, and then the bad guys, even though they're Israelites, People like Saul, who's trying to kill David, the Lord's anointed king. People like Absalom, who tries to steal the kingdom from his own father. You've got people who, yeah, they descend from Israel, but they're not Israel in the sense that we're talking about. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to start giving a a sort of... um, Uh, review of the Old Testament to prove these points. And so he starts with the physical children of Abraham. And he says here in verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He just quotes that one line there from from Genesis uh, chapter 21, verse 12. And implicitly, he's evoking the whole narrative. And in the wider narrative, you remember what had happened. God had made this promise to Abraham. Abraham, um, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then Abraham begins to worry because the years are going by and he's really old and Sarah's past the, the age to bear children. And so Sarah comes up with this plan. Hey, I've got this fertile handmaiden. Why don't you go into her? And maybe God will make a nation out of that child. And so they do, and, and so Ishmael is born by Hagar. And the, and, and the Lord basically says, Hagar's not the one. And, and, and in that visit, when the Lord comes to them in the form of the three visitors, he says to, to Abraham, about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And the Lord is, is essentially saying, no, Isaac, not Ishmael. So not all, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now you can, you can imagine 
Paul's dialogue partners. I'm sure Paul had many conversations about these issues. He, he, he was probably regularly confronted with Jewish people who said something like this to him. Paul, if Jesus is really the Messiah, why did the rabbis in Jerusalem reject him? And so Paul has to, as part of his evangelistic efforts, he has to undertake to try to explain why it is that not only did they reject him, they crucified him. And Paul, you're saying that he, he rose from the dead. Well, why don't they believe him still? Well, not all who descend from Israel are Israel. And then if he, if he says through Isaac, implicitly not Ishmael, you know what they're going to say, right? Well, of course not Ishmael. Hagar doesn't count. That was, that was fleshly unbelief when Sarah sent Hagar in, to which Paul's probably saying exactly, and that's still the problem with the Jews. But, but not only was it fleshly unbelief, she wasn't part of the, the, she wasn't a Hebrew. She was an Arab. She doesn't count Paul. And that pushes Paul to his next example. But, but before we get to the next example, look at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring or seed. In other words, you can't do this on your own in the flesh. You, you, the promise has to come to you, and you have to believe the promise, which is the way things worked with, with uh, Sarah and the birth of Isaac. It wasn't something that was accomplished by means of the flesh. It was something that was brought about by the power of the Word of God. So the next example, um, verse 9, for this is what the promise said about this. I'm sorry, we're getting to it, the next example. Um, verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Um, so, so that section deals with the birth of, of Isaac, and Paul's point there is the word of God has not failed, failed. He's now moving in verses 10 through 13 into this next section where he's going to assert that God's purpose in election will stand. So verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So, you know, Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau. And if you could object about the previous example, Isaac and Ishmael, and you could say, well, you got di different mothers. You got the real wife and then a handmaiden. And the handmaiden is not even an Israelite. Now, you got one man, you got one woman, and one way to render what the text says here when it says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, you could, you could translate that something like um, having conception from one man or perhaps through one act of conception because the twins are going to be conceived at the same time. Same mother, same moment the twins are conceived. And Paul continues with his example in verse 11. Though they were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Now let's just work through each one of those phrases uh, piece by piece. Verse, verse 11, though they were not yet born. What Paul is saying here is, it is not the case that God looked at the life of Jacob and compared it with the life of Esau and decided Jacob's going to be the one that I'm going to choose because of the way that he's going to live. Though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing, either good or bad. Paul is emphasizing this has nothing to do with something in the person who was chosen. So to apply this, let me just urge you to recognize, if you think that you are a Christian because you made a right choice, or because you're the right kind of person, or because of anything about you, I would urge you to humble yourself and repent of that. You are not a Christian because you are a better person than other people. If there's anything of that in us, we are proud. If there's anything of that in us, if we, in, in any way, if we think, well, naturally God would choose me. Look how superior I am to other people. We need to repent. That is not what makes us Christian. And if it did come down to our choice, ultimately, let me just insert a caveat here. We really do make choices. We really do make choices. You really do need to respond to the gospel. If you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever and, and you hear this message that we talk about all the time about how you're a sinner and God put Jesus forward to pay the penalty for sin and if you'll turn away from sin and trust in Christ, you can be saved. You really do need to respond to that. You really do need to believe that message. End of caveat. If you believe it, it won't be because you chose it. Ultimately. And if you want me to explain that mystery to you, how it is that God is absolutely and completely sovereign and you are absolutely and completely responsible for how you respond to it, I'm at the end of my wits and there's no way that I can offer you an explanation for that. But both things are true. Both things are true. The Bible teaches, look at verse 11 there, that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve. The Bible teaches that God chooses people like that, without reference to how they will live, without reference to what they will do. The Bible teaches that. And the Bible teaches that we are responsible for our choices. The Bible, the Bible holds both things and doesn't let go of either. And we must hold both things and not let go of either. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger, the older being Esau. And Rebecca is told that he will serve Jacob. And then Paul adds in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This, is, this passage was read earlier in, in, in the service. And, and I, I want to go back to that passage and think with you about it so that, again, we can feel the gratitude that we should feel. Essentially, what, what God is saying to Israel through the prophet Malachi is, look at the way that I chose Jacob. And you need to recognize that my choice of Jacob guarantees your future. It guarantees, Israel, that you will partake in the new heavens and new earth. It guarantees that though the present city of Jerusalem is destroyed, I'm going to rebuild it in glory. It guarantees you that I'm going to send you the Savior, the Messiah. All of those things are guaranteed by my choice of Jacob. And Israel, compare that with what I've done with Esau. With Esau, if I tear them down and they decide they're going to rebuild, I'm going to tear it down again. So... So I would urge you not to soften this. 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I would urge you to take this and to look at your life and say, how, look at how God has loved me. And we should, we should look at the reprobate and we should see their lives and we should feel there but for the grace of God go I. I'm not a better person than them. It was God's, God's pure love and unmerited mercy. He chose me. He caused the gospel to come to me. I didn't, I didn't urge somebody to preach the good news to me. In fact, when I was hearing the good news as a, as a young child and the, the pastor would offer this invitation, the last thing I wanted to do was go down the aisle. The last thing I wanted to do was respond to that message. I was resisting it and, and not wanting it and wanting to avoid it and wanting to live my own way. And then there came a day when all of a sudden there was nothing that I wanted more. I didn't do that to myself. This is what God does. Before we were born, before we've done... Now, note too that Paul is not just dealing with individuals here. He's explaining why it is and how it is that the Jewish people have largely rejected the Messiah. So he's giving individual examples, and he is also uh, applying that further, uh, extrapolating from it out, and it's going to provoke questions. And, and he's going to deal with, with the, the questions that always arise. It, so if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, this sounds like that would be not fair of God to do. Come back. Um, I, I'm out of town next week, but the following week, we're going to look at Romans 14 through eight, 9, 14 through 18. Paul's going to take up that question, that very question. This looks like it makes God unfair. The questions that people always ask, people say, well, this would make it where I'm not responsible. Come back. Romans 9, 19 through 19 and following, he's going to deal with that question. He's going to address all the questions that always arise when, when these things are taught. God exercises meticulous sovereignty over all things, and he has to if Romans 8.28 is going to be true. Look back at that verse, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In order for that verse to be true, God has to be in sovereign control of everything that happens. As R.C. Sproul said, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, we're doomed. God is in absolute control of everything that happens. And yes, we are responsible. And yes, we make choices. Both th the Bible affirms both things. But this truth, this truth that, that it wasn't because we made a right choice, and it wasn't because God foresaw that we were going to be the virtuous people, this truth will produce genuine humility. This truth will produce a real understanding of and appreciation of God's mercy in our lives. And, and, these ideas that God is absolutely sovereign over all that happens, this will give us confidence. This, this is what guarantees that Faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is what guarantees that from every tribe and people and language, there will be people before the throne. Apart from God's election of, of those who will be saved, we would have no confidence that somebody from every tribe is going to be represented before the throne. But if God has chosen them from every tribe, we can be confident to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, knowing that God has people there. 
God has people there. And, and what we are responsible to do is communicate the good news to them. This will also, in, in, in ways that go beyond our ability to comprehend, in ways that reach deeper into our souls than I can describe, these truths of the sovereignty of God will enable us to bear up under suffering. And, 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 and in some ways, what Paul is teaching in Romans 9 is like undergirding Romans 8.28. Because it's because God is meticulously sovereign that he's able to work all things together for good. I want to read to you from this um, story about Barbara Bush, the wife of George H.W. Bush, who was um, sometime president of this country. In this article, it's, it's a review of a biography of, of Mrs. Bush. And, and the author writes, the signal event of their married life was the death from leukemia of their daughter Robin at age three in 1953. Throughout the child's illness, most of which was spent at Sloan Kettering in New York, Barbara took control, while George spent most of his time back in Texas tending the other children, emotionally unequipped to face the inevitable. After Robin's death, however, Barbara and George had switched roles. Miss Page, Page writes, night after night, he would hold her as she cried herself to sleep. As Mrs. Bush wrote in her 1994 memoir, George would put me together again. Ms. Page has made the strategic decision to open the story of Barbara Bush's life with her daughter's death. Listen to this. All the successes to come, not just of homemaking and child rearing, but in politics and charity, are understood in the shadow of this dimensionless loss. No one seems to doubt that death shaped the woman Mrs. Bush became. On the one hand, Ms. Page writes, she developed a survivor's armor and with it an even less patience for the general boneheadedness of people. On the other hand, said one of her closest friends, the loss was one of the things that made Barbara so tender to others after she got through it. We don't know what purposes God is accomplishing through our suffering. But if we know he's sovereign, and if we're confident that he is the one who does the choosing, then we can be confident that he will never let us go and that everything that he does in our lives is for our good. Let's pray. Father, would you give us great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the fact that people turn away from Jesus? And Lord, would you give us an urgency that would cause us to be like John Harper, who was prepared to entrust his precious six-year-old daughter to a lifeboat, believing that you would care for her, and expend his last moments crying out, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. Lord, would you give us that kind of burden? And would you, would you cause us to feel the enormity of the privileges that we enjoy 
to live at this point, to have been born in a place where no foreign army is marching through massacring people, to have been born in a place where, where we are not enslaved by an oppressive aristocracy, to have been born in a place where, where the gospel has come, where the whole Bible is available in the language that we speak. Lord, would you cause us to feel the enormity of the way that you have privileged us? And Lord, keep us from ever thinking, as Israel did, you say you have loved us. How have you loved us? Lord, cause us to see these things that you've done for us and to recognize your loving hand. And Father, would you, would you make us those who put our hand over our mouth in response to the truth that your purpose in election will stand? Would you make us those who are humble and contrite and spirit and who tremble at your word? Keep us from pride. Keep us from a self-regarding sense that, that we should have been chosen. Lord, help us to remember that in Adam all are condemned, that no one deserves your mercy. And help us to remember that you have been merciful to those whom you have chosen to be merciful to and cause our hearts to respond like those who have received mercy. Lord, we love you and we want to know you. We want to be intimate with you. We want to we want to believe that Romans 8.28 is true, that you are shaping us and conforming us to the image of Christ. So help us, Lord, we pray. Cause your word to do for us what only your word can do for us. And revive our souls. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.